You want to live your life, your body life with freedom and dignity. And no one's going to take that from you. But guess what? Some other people want to live their embodied life with freedom and dignity too. Greetings, hello, salutations, and welcome back to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I am Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. OMG, Adrian, I know who we're talking to today, and you know who we're talking to today, but the people that, well, I guess they do know because they clicked on this episode and it had it right in the title. I thought we could build some suspense. We release it under, with surprise guests. With surprise guests. (laughs) The creator of gender studies. Oh my God. Can I ask you this? Is there a German word for the special fear of misgendering Judith Butler? (laughs) (laughs) There really should be. Can you work on that? Because, like, I think we need that addition to our vocabulary. Well, Germans have a lot of opinions about gendering, so there should be a lot to work with there. Yeah, so today's guest is none other than Professor Judith Butler. The Judith Butler. That one, not another one. The one you're thinking of. Author of Gender Trouble, Bodies That Matter, and a forthcoming book for general audiences. A trade book. exciting. A trade book. Their first trade book. Their first trade book, which we got sort of to talk to them about, which is wonderful. I, like, still can't retain my chill about all of this i actually felt like the interview itself was remarkably chill judith butler is charming warm funny you know all of the properties you would expect of someone who's been like very prominent for a very long time but it was such a pleasure to get to talk about judith's upbringing their parents their early life like that kind of stuff that you're not going to get from gender trouble uh you can get here yeah the, the dentistry was not mentioned in Gender Trouble, oh, I think. Um, I've taught that book she... a lot. <laughs> yes, Judith Butler's dad was a dentist, and we got to talk about it. I loved the discussion about their mom just as much, if not more. Yeah. And also, what you've come to expect from us here in the Feminist Present, there is a discussion <sighs> of birth order. <laughs> I, almost, I thought we made it so far into it. I was like, well, maybe Laura won't bring it on. There you were. Nope, uh, nope, nope. I am so predictable. I would write it in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they seemed yeah. fine with it. They offered an interesting perspective on the same. Oh, absolutely. That's true. That's but true. yes, we are developing. I feel like one of the things we're circling around here is Adrian and I have been working on developing, like, what is the standard set of questions that we ask everybody? Yeah. I can tell you right now, birth order is going to be one of them. But if anybody wants to tweet us any yeah. suggestions, we're totally open to them. Yeah. But like, I don't even know how to summarize. Like, we talked to Judith fucking butler oh oh my god i mean it was just such a pleasure such an honor like i i stammer you know i am verklempt yeah well maybe we'll point out you know this this is sort of we've decided that we're not going to top this this is the (laughs) conclusion of our uh eight-part series at this point around the, the question of how the cancel culture panic became kind of a panic around gender that's indeed what judith butler's new book is kind of going to be about it's about the global kind of anti-gender studies anti-gender movement so we felt like this was probably the best way to close out this series to get someone who's been watching people misunderstand what the implications of gender studies are for the patients that must require for 32 years longer probably but who's seeing it and also seeing it instrumentalized in ways that it 
previously hadn't been, right? So Judith makes reference at some point to the fact that, you know, they got chased through an airport in Brazil. Like they were anti, I mean, you can look at the, I think, I don't know if there's video of this, but there's definitely pictures of it. There's people with like holding their face, like posters their face on it with like, a, you know, uh, like horrible things written on it. I think there was an effigy. It was a Judith effigy that was, oh was burned at one of these protests, which is a kind of, like, like with so many of these things, right? When we were talking to Michael, when we were talking to Jules, when we were talking to Melissa, we're always going on about these things that kind of have been true for a while, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that have come to a head in a weird and troubling way in the last three to five years. And mm -hmm. the kind of freak out over gender is one of those. It's like, it's not like people were like chill about it before, but the amount of chill has really reduced remarkably in the last five or six years. Judith points this out that like, you know, it's astonishing to see how consistently the world's biggest nuclear power, Russia, is currently like justifying its illegal and inhumane attack on Ukraine by referring to like gender studies in the West, mm -hmm. being like, mm -hmm. oh, we're, we're bombarding this house. Yeah to like prevent gender studies from coming here and like to protect I mean, the nuclear I mean, family is why we are bombing this house <laughs> it's, it's just it's, it's just absolutely it's just nuts but like but it does give you a sense of like you know there's some kind of collapse of proportion that's mm -hmm. really happened here in the last few years and i think judith did a really good job in walking us through what they think happened here breaking news judith butler is good at analysis <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, in a twist no one saw coming. You heard it here first. Yeah. The author of, of Gender Trouble was able to make sense of gender for us. And and it, the way it's being used in contemporary discourse, yeah. I'm being lighthearted because I'm just like still giddy about this, but... But I, I actually really love the elongated gesture of what you just drew. You know, like, I feel like we have spent the last several weeks circling around this moral panic, trying to trace it back to its source and tracing and tracing and going back and back. So where else could we possibly have landed but Judith Butler if we were Absolutely. tracing this back to its foreparent, you know? So yeah, like Adrian said, there's no way we can possibly top this. You should all just go home now. Yeah, um, yeah. No, don't. I mean, you're probably already at home. But uh, really what that means is probably the cadence of our recording and release structure is going to be a little different over the last couple of weeks. We have some... We have some creative buns in the oven that we need to tend to yes. a little bit. So we will keep coming at you with episodes, but this will be probably the last of our trans moral panic cancel culture series, historic series. Yeah, but there's a new series coming. We're exploring, as Laura's saying, something like an entirely new format. Mm -hmm. I can already reveal that normally when, when a podcast says this, it means they're going to Patreon. It turns out we're not going on Patreon, so we don't worry about that. We are not legally able to do that. Yes, yeah. we have looked uh, into We briefly that. looked into it, and we're like, nope, I uh, can't do it. That highlights an implicit truth that I think is worth mentioning on air and making explicit to our listeners. We are not supported by ad dollars. We are not supported by listener dollars. That is a tremendous privilege that we have by virtue of working at Stanford. And it also means that our format is allowed to be different than certain other things. Yeah. We are an educational yeah. resource, which means that, you know, we're not bound by the same fact-checking strictures as, say, like a major newspaper like the New York Times. But like that also affords us a lot of freedom that we're not bound to listener or ad dollars. So yeah. just to be transparent about that with you, that's what's going on with us. But if you want to join our dollar for dollar challenge, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, we looked into that and we were like, oh, shoot, we are we are owned by a 501c3. We can't actually do that. Can't do it. So much as we would love to divert your dollars to like the nearest abortion fund, we're, we're just going to have to ask you to cut us out as the middle person and like donate those dollars directly. Donate, donate, donate. And while you're donating, enjoy our conversation with the one, the only. OMG. The truly legendary. We say that a lot, but the truly legendary Judith Butler. The iconic, the legendary, the foreparent of gender studies, the reason we are all here. Judith Butler is coming at you in just one moment. I have never done this before, but I do feel a sentimental impulse to dedicate this episode with Judith Butler to two entities. One, I would like to dedicate this to every feminist I've ever known or screamed about gender trouble in a library with. I would also like to dedicate this episode to Professor Julie Crawford, who gave me gender trouble in Feminist Text One, my first year of college, the class that like truly permanently changed my life. Thank you, Professor Crawford, and you are part of why we're here today. That's lovely. Thank you for joining us. Let's stroll across this bridge to Judith motherfucking Butler. (laughs) Enjoy. Okay, Professor Butler, Adrian is going to hate me for asking this, but I can't resist. Your father was a dentist? Yes, my dad was a dentist. And what kind of dentist? Well, he was just a regular family dentist. What kinds of dentists? You know, you have the periodontist, you have the orthodontist, you have many specialties. But he was just a a generalist. He served his community. I'm frightened of them all, so I don't don't know. (laughs) Totally. Did your mother work outside the home? Uh, Yes, my mother worked to promote racial integration in the city of Cleveland. Amazing. Oh my goodness. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's fascinating. You know, it's interesting to me. It's only occurred to me that in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Ed and the refusal of many states around the country to integrate educational institutions Mm -hmm. and neighborhoods, a number of initiatives emerged that were not exactly federally mandated, but they were funded by Mm -hmm. federal and local governments. And what that involved was getting communities together and thinking about what integration means. And in the city of Cleveland, of course, as in Detroit, as in Chicago, there were established patterns of racial segregation, white people up in the hills, black people down in the city, But in fact, there were a lot of intermediate zones where that was not the case. And then the question is, how do you expand from those zones? And how do you produce a practice of integration? How do you hold realtors accountable for their discriminatory practices Mm -hmm. for redlining? Redlining, yeah. How How do you get public officials to be part of this and get people to sign on to a vision of racial integration? So she was a good liberal and she had a a background in economics, and she cared mm. about social equality. Probably when she was younger, she was something of a socialist. But then as she got older, she became a proper liberal Democrat. But, she, you know, she had good values. You know, my How dad was that... causing pain in the dental office. My mother was integrating <laughs> Alleviating it. That's yeah. all I know. That's all I really know. 
that can't possibly be all you know, because I, I just I have to ask, like, what was your how did you perceive that work that she was doing or what impact or impression did it leave on you as a young person? Well, I thought it was important. I, I was aware that we lived in a neighborhood that was committed to integration, that my school was and that it was happening. At the same time, I was more of a revolutionary and I thought she was somewhat hypocritical because most of her life was, in fact, white and Jewish and somewhat hermetically sealed, but she did have these commitments. So she called for certain things publicly, but then I saw that she had more kind of narrow-minded views. I have to be careful because my my mother's 92 and she is alive and she does uh, listen to things. So That is wonderful. That's amazing. I mean, the thought of your mother hearing this would be, it would be amazing to us, but yes, we don't want to cause a rift. (laughs) Yes. We're trying not to focus on it in the final years. But that process you describe feels so essential to me and in in a lot of ways related to the sort of like moral panics that I think we're more apparently here to talk about today. Like you describe a process of recognizing in your mother, someone who had qualities that you admired, but you are also wanted to move beyond those qualities. And that to me seems like a very essential positioning of any sort of like mentor and protege, for lack of a better word. Do you like, do you think that is a sort of essential process or how do you regard that process now? I mean, as somebody who mentors younger people, I, I see that there are times when they do in fact differentiate from me or they have from the right. start made clear that they're not totally in line with what I do or think. And that's fine with me. I've never wanted to see a replication of myself. I don't think teaching or mentoring should be a narcissistic practice in which you, you know, you get younger folks to carry your word into the world. Sure. I, don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. I mean, I would hope that my students or indeed my son, who's 28, uh, do that they don't think of me as hypocritical. Right. I mean, if I am hypocritical, then I need to, you know, take stock of that. And surely I've made uh, several errors in my private and public life, and I try to take stock of that and take responsibility. But I wouldn't want to be as harshly judged as I judged my mother. <laughs> Who would? <laughs> it's also fascinating to think about the fact that, you know, in some way, your work can also be understood as interrogating the concepts by which liberals sought to make the world a better place. You're saying, you know, hey, let's be careful in how we apply these and the kind of things we maybe fall off the table in being a little too simplistic in how we apply them. Is is Was that a position that sort of came out of that experience? Or do you think you sort of worked your way towards it through your philosophical training? Well, I think when I was young, I, you know, I was 12 years old in 1968. And I was reading a lot. I started reading a lot at a pretty young age. You know, I saw the footage of the police gunning down those students at Kent State. And I was part of demonstrations against the police and against... When you were 12? Well, when I, between 12 and 14. Wow. Very precocious. In junior high, I I lowered the the flag to half-mast. Nice. After the killing of those students at Kent State. Wow. Which was very local, right? How far is Kent State from Cleveland? Oh, just about 40 minutes. And then... I was suspended from school. Oh, my God. And of course, you know, that's an example where my mother comes to school and instead of congratulating me for acting in a principled fashion against an absolutely atrocious set of murders, she, of course, disciplined me for bad behavior and the rest. And I was reading Eldridge Cleaver and I, I certainly understood myself as a revolutionary. And I remember being asked by the principal 
well, what would your revolution imply? Like, what would be the result of your revolution? And I, I didn't have an answer. And then he, he laughed at me as if to say, not knowing what the world would be like after revolution shows that you're just mindlessly, childishly calling for revolution. But now, as right. I reflect back, and actually it took about 10 years before I reflected back on that, I thought, well, in some ways, we don't always know what revolutions will bring. Yeah. There's a contingency to it. And even like Georges Sorel, when he was writing his reflections on violence, violence, he said, look, let's just give them a false image of the future and get them moving toward a revolutionary spot, even though we know that what we promised post-revolution may not actualize itself. And, and I thought, well, there is always that contingency, and revolution is a risk, and it can backfire. And reactionary powers can emerge in new forms. So, you know, there has to be vigilance and self-reflection and during revolutionary times and post-revolutionary times to figure out, you know, what is the best way. Yeah, in some ways, right, like the attempt to impose limits on liberation is always kind of a liberal gesture. It's saying, you know, this has to be mm. captured within our existing institutions, really, you know, protest over there, but not over here, but it can't affect the banks or whatever it is. It does seem to me that a, an openness is going to be part of a real revolutionary politics by definition almost. No? But, mm. you know, I also think that in liberal circles, people would have certain points of view and they would, they would announce them at dinner parties or even in public spaces, but it didn't mean that their lives were going to change, right. going to give up comforts, or that they were going to take steps that would really start to restructure the world as we know it. So I became very skeptical of the liberal project at the same time. For instance, I'm not a person who despairs of, of law. Like I think radical lawyers are really important. Yeah. Mm. So if you ask me, mm -hmm. like, are you more of an anarchist? Do you not think law can do any good? Is law always violent? Or do you give money to the Center for Constitutional Rights? I would say I, I'm really happy to talk with anarchists and I understand lots about that that I appreciate, but I do give money to the Center for Constitutional <laughs> Rights and NARAL and, you know, Thank all God. kinds of lawyers doing the right thing right now, right? We, yeah, need, yeah. we need them really yeah. bad. Just the invocation of NARAL made me feel a sort of sinking sense of despair, but I don't want to despair. I mean, I appreciate your movement against despair in that. I don't want to cut this short, but I did want to ask about, so we've talked about, you know, your mentorship. We've talked about productive and well-intentioned disagreements with one's elders. But I think that when we get to the topic of what your new book's going to be about, we're kind of dealing with bad readers of your work, right? And I was very struck by this reading over your Guardian piece again. In some way, your work, especially in gender trouble has been sort of misunderstood for, for 30 years and you've written extensively being like, that's not what I said, please read me again. But it's at the same time clear that like, it's been kind of operationalized, it's been politicized in a new way in the last five to 10 years, right? That like suddenly there's this global movement that claims to understand what you're, what you were talking about and mm. is really, as you point out in that piece, kind of running a fascist playbook based on, on its opposition to some fever dream version of, of your thought. Can you talk about your bad readers in some way over time? Like the fact that you've lived with misreadings of your work for so long, but I'm guessing it feels a little different now? Well, let me say this. I mean, there are, there are some academic criticisms of the work with which I disagreed. I suppose I would say these are bad readings or not careful readings, but I'm used to that and it doesn't really bother me anymore. And in some ways, what I did 33 years ago... <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> no longer belongs to me. I mean, it comes back to me. I have to mm. assume responsibility for it, but it's certainly not in my hands. And, you know, were I to write a new book with the title Gender Trouble, it, it would probably be a very different book than right. what it was back then when I, you know, had my head all wrapped around what the Americans call French theory. Um, <laughs> it's a very French book, yeah. <laughs> So that's one thing, but that doesn't bother me so much. That's fine. I'm used to it. I think there are some places where my work has been invoked by right-wing Catholics or right-wing evangelicals to say that, oh, gender is something you can choose at will. Gender is something that is unnatural and fully constructed. And by constructed, they mean not constructed by norms that have long histories and a sense of obduracy to them, but rather just chosen. So it gets assimilated to the idea of radical individualism and also a disdain for nature, which also means natural law and divine law, right? So the Vatican's arguments, which it has indeed refined over the last years, take aim at something called gender feminists rather than feminism itself. I mean, they're happy to think about feminism within heterosexual marriage, (laughs) from different kinds of heterosexual marriages. They can, you know, they can do that. And yes, women should have work and they have much to contribute to the community. And so trying to ameliorate the stark hierarchy of doctrine of what they call the natural family or complementarity, heterosexual complementarity as a divine mandate. So sometimes my work gets invoked, but sometimes not at all. Sometimes it's more broadly gender. And the very fact that anthropologists, sociologists in the 70s and 80s kind of used a nature culture distinction in some ways that, you know, turned out well, it turned out to be problematic for the left, and it turned out to be problematic for the right. Um, So I'm not the only one who did that. Of course, when I was attacked in Brazil, I became an icon, or in certain places, uh, they call me the popes, le papes um, du genre in French. I didn't know that. I mean, congratulations on the new job. That's (laughs) wonderful. There's no salary, though. Oh, Uh, But look, I mean, it's not just me. I mean, in certain places, it's not me at all, but it is feminism. And when they say gender, when they're against gender, right, this entire movement, which is now global in character, the anti-gender ideology movement, this movement, which spans Latin America, Eastern Europe, parts of East Asia, North Africa, the evangelical apostolic churches there, the Vatican, Vatican's influence in Switzerland, in France, in parts of Germany. You know, this movement, which is vast, when it says it's against gender, it's not actually thinking of any particular concept of gender. It's a word, it's almost like an empty word that is um, the place for a terrifying phantasm. Like gender is going to destroy man, civilization, the family. You will not be a parent anymore. You will not be a mother or a father. You will be parent one or parent two. And Putin says it. Maloney in Italy says it. Right? They're actually, within two weeks, made the exact same argument about, oh, you can't be mother or father. You'll be parent one and parent two. So, you know, it's linking sort of neo-fascism in Europe with Putin-esque, tyrannical, authoritarian politics in Russia, and yet you also find it in other forms. In that case, when these folks are saying they're against gender, 
they mean lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, intersex, asexual, plus rights. <laughs> they mean, you know, more specifically, gay, lesbian marriage. They mean gay, lesbian adoption. They mean contraception, access to, production of. They mean abortion. They mean feminism, which denies the hierarchy between men and women, which opens up kinship beyond the nuclear family, which also insists on the possibility of childbirth outside of marriage, of single parenting, trans rights, trans healthcare, healthcare for trans youth, for non-gender conforming people, police protection against travesty in Brazil or trans folks all over the world in Turkey. Also, an objection to the idea that there's such a thing as gender violence, that men do, however we define men, that men do generally subordinate and inflict violence on women, whether sexual violence or battery or assault. All of these platforms are included in this idea of gender, which becomes this threat to the church, the family, masculinity, your lived embodied sense of your sexed identity or your sexuality. And there's a a major panic afoot. And it's not just like a cultural deflection from an economic set of policies. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't believe that's the case. I think economics and the gender discourse come together because many of these countries are increasingly neoliberal, which means that social services have been withdrawn, that the state funding for social services has been withdrawn, which means that a lot of basic needs fall on the family or the church. So the church-family nexus becomes, in many people's minds, the only way for basic needs to be met. Interesting, yeah. Right. So that, you know, so that anything that is regarded as an attack on that opens up the prospect of radical precarity, dispossession, poverty, loss. I mean, people are fearing destruction for all kinds of good reasons. The climate is being destroyed. (laughs) People are being destroyed. The Brazilian rainforest is being destroyed. Whole ways of life are being destroyed by the way in which capitalism and its neoliberal variant are operating. But to say that it's a gender or to say it's critical race theory, right. uh, you know, it it collects that fear of destruction. It gives it a name, you know, and you can produce a community that fights it. It's doing a lot of work right now. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's just ideological. It's actually a fight for certain ways of being and also a way of not looking at forms of economic productivity, capitalism, neoliberalism that are in fact devastating our world. One thing I did want to ask you about, so I entirely understand your derivation of sort of fact that gender becomes this kind of catch-all for a kind of internationalist far right, from Meloni to uh, Andrzej Duda, Bolsonaro, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, 
it seems to me one thing that's always striking to me, and that's kind of what this series on our podcast is about. There are people who would likely be very upset to be lumped in with Vladimir Putin and Andrzej Duda, who declare themselves liberals, you know, who can sound similar. I mean, they're not quite as openly conspiratorial. The Catholic, Catholic doctrine of, around the family is not as obviously in the background, but... You know, they also go on about gender theory. I'm from Germany and like there are people who are self-declared liberals and it's just, you know, when I say I, I run an institute for gender studies, I can just stop talking. They're not going to, they're going to tune me out. And to me, these two things, like what's the relationship between those two things? It's clear that in your book, you're going to talk about one group. And I think that makes sense. But how did these two relate? How did they end up speaking the same language in this way? Well, I think you're you're right to point out Maloney and and Duda, but let's keep Orban in mind. Right, Orban. Because yeah. Orban is in some sense the most, Orban and Bolsonaro both, in my mind, are the most extreme. Right. Orban exercising more state power, actually, than Bolsonaro. But I do think, well, the book does deal with some of the debates that are happening in the UK, for instance, about trans rights and right. the gender critical response to trans discourse, trans political claims, and trans claims to healthcare and legal recognition. And they also, I would say the gender critical feminists are critical of the idea of gender because they they also think that it denies reality. And their version of reality tends to be, well, it's hard to stabilize because there are different people who are writing in that vein. But if you take Kathleen Stock, for instance, um, that seems to be a kind of positivism on the one hand, like here it is right before our eyes, tell me what I'm seeing is not true. But also more recently, she's taken on the view that perhaps there's a kind of a priori conceptual apparatus we have that makes us see two sexes and that we are cognitively structured in such a way that we identify people on the basis of their ostensibly biological sex. What she doesn't accept is that sex assignment helps to produce the person we see, and that sex assignment sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, and that many young people live in states of very serious suffering in relationship to the sex assignments that they've been given, and that their efforts to achieve well-being through changing that assignment is something that I believe we all ought to be trying to understand better and respect more fully. So I do think that in the gender critical discourse, the idea of gender as construction means that it is either a fakery that's been imposed by right. certain technologies, that's like the earlier version, or an ideology that's taken hold, a kind of wrong-minded euphoria that people mm. think they can just like decide what they are. Mm. And you know, I think in the case of someone like J.K. Rowling, it's been even more disturbing because she imagines that anyone who still has a penis, you know, I won't go on and on about that, right. but anyone who has a penis, bears a penis, has not removed the penis, is a man capable of rape. I'm trying to understand why the having of a penis would make a man capable of rape. I mean, men can rape with any number of objects and certainly have. Right. Some rapists turn out to be impotent and, you know, or, you know, it's, that's not necessarily the way it works. But the penis is not the cause of rape. I mean, we live in a culture, right. we live in a society that is reproducing all the time the idea that women can be had, taken, consumed, spit out, done with 
as anyone wishes, and that these are norms of violation that we have accepted as part of everyday life, right? So a woman within a marriage who is raped, I mean, now we have pretty good legal protections for such women, but in many countries, you try to bring that to a court of law and it is dismissed like, oh, that's just a crime of passion or those things happen between men and women. It's like, oh, what are you getting upset about? That's the way it's always been. It's like, even if you agree, that's the way it's always been, then (laughs) this is the time in which it should cease to be that way. I mean, yes, but but the idea that what feminism has done to describe the social structures of domination, of violation, the social structures of inequality, how deeply embedded they are, how much work we have to do to really change all that. And then suddenly these other apparent feminists come along and say, oh, the body part, it's the body part that's to yes. right. Like, oh, men, men uh, assigned male at birth who have a penis are potential rapists and should not be in the bathroom with me. I mean, I just came from the pool, lovely trans woman, twice my size next to me, putting on the most wonderful bikini. And I just thought, you know, I wish J.K. Rowling could be here with the two of us. <laughs> to behold this magnificence. Yes. Yes. Oh. What are you talking about? But right. there's a phantasm that takes over yes. among some of the more transphobic feminists. And it seems to be about the, the body part. And many of yes. them do report on traumatic experiences they have had. Many of us have had them. But of do course. I hold the body part responsible for what happened to me? I don't think so. There's like a whole person, whole person formed within a society that was saying, you can do this. Yes. Somebody saying, yeah, this is how you do it. These are norms that get passed on and applauded and not interrupted effectively enough. And we should all be focusing on that because the same folks who are attacking women and committing femicide are also attacking trans people and are attacking gender non-conforming people. I mean, we should be putting our minds together and coming up with a critique of sexual and gender violence that is broad enough, that has race at its core, that has class at its core, that is transnational, that's able to approach this through various perspectives and produce some great transnational alliances. I mean, this is we are wasting time on these debates. We are wasting time. And it breaks my heart, quite frankly. I obviously couldn't agree with you more. And it just brings me back to how much all of this is ground we've already tread. You know, Audre Lorde said it in the 80s, rape is not aggressive sexuality, it is sexualized aggression. You know, like that thoroughly debunks the mythical phantasmic link you were just describing between the penis and rape. You know, that penis automatically equals rape. And when you were talking about that, I was thinking that I think the causality as presented in this like turfy argument isn't even like the penis lends itself to the potential of rape. It's almost presented as the penis is an inevitable link to rape. Like the penis is an uncontrollable rapist itself, which gets back to this totally gender essentialist concept that people with penises somehow can't control themselves sexually and that it is the role of people with vaginas to adjust their behavior accordingly. I'm also so glad you brought up marital rape because like, as you point out, it's mostly resolved in the American law by now, but I think it's also worth mentioning that marital rape was perfectly legal in the majority of American states for the majority of the 20th century. 
And like, it is totally appropriate to invoke that among the swath of other sort of gender-based legal implications that you were talking about. I'm also so glad we're speaking globally about this, and I couldn't agree more emphatically that this has to take a global lens. And Professor Butler, I will just die if I let this opportunity pass without asking you what you think about what's going on in Iran right now. We are seeing these historic uprisings that are both new and not new, you know, both new and deeply connected to movements that have gone before following the death of Masa Amini. Like, what are your thoughts? Yes. Well, let me just go back briefly to something Adrian said, and then I want to come right back to this important question. First of all, you were saying, you know, there's this kind of fascist opposition to gender, and then there's this liberal and even feminist opposition to gender. Yes. How do we think about these things together? And I, I think our liberal and feminist friends who are opposing gender and attributing a lot of pretty scary material <laughs> to this idea of gender. Oh, we will be we will be surprised and those people will be disguising themselves and everybody who believes this is deluded. I think we have to see that there's strong phantasmatic investments, both mm-hmm. in the fascist version and in the transphobic version, that people are attributing a lot. You know, when Putin says, oh, right after he annexes the sections of Ukraine, he says, well, uh, aren't you glad we're saving you from gay ropa, <sighs> where you won't be able to say mama or papa, you'll have to say parent one or parent two. Okay, exact same line as Maloney. He's obviously making an alliance tacitly with that Europe, right? The kind of neo-fascist Europe. But this, you know, this kind of, oh, everything you care about most deeply will be stripped from you. It's like, what, because I want to be called mama or papa, you right. know? Uh, um, but, but I do think there are, there are massive fears that, that get localized in both cases. And one of the things we have to think about in responding to it is, well, we can present good arguments and say, well, this is actually not the case, and let me show you how. And here's my evidence, and here's my logic. But when you're dealing with a really intense phantasm that's like like a lot of fear, a lot of fear of destruction, a fear that everything about your intimate life is going to be stripped from you. Mm -hmm. You have to actually approach people in another way to say, look, you want to live your life, your embodied life with freedom and dignity. And no one's going to take that from you. But guess what? Some other people want to live their embodied life with freedom and dignity right. too. And imagine if we lived in a world in which nobody had to fear like you're fearing now, or fear the way women on the streets have to fear, or fear in the way that trans kids have to fear in Poland that the police are going to stop them and give them tickets for unsanitary behavior. There has to be another appeal. I mean, I'm all for logic. I'm, you know, I'm still a philosophy head. You know, I, I want to demonstrate what's right and wrong. But I also think we have to like offer a vision of the world that makes it more attractive, which everyone can affirm or kind of come over to affirm. And I don't know like how that can work. I feel like progressive churches, maybe progressive mosques, pro- progressive mm-hmm. synagogues, like, like, let's not despair of religion. Like queer theology is a thing and it's exciting. I'm really excited by queer theology. Yes. It's super important, but we, we need to like, not be all hip, secular, and skeptical. We actually need to move out of our domain of comfort to try to talk with people yes. who are confused and haven't bought something that, say, the evangelical church has told them. 
that turns out not to be true. And that's what's happening in a lot of Southern states is they're taking those books out of libraries and shutting down sex mm -hmm. ed classes and firing people. Making student athletes track their periods. I mean, that's the most amazing thing I just saw. Hyper-regulatory yeah. surveillance and all the rest. But let me just say, I mean, I think, unfortunately, liberals and transphobic feminists can be helping fascist trends even when they don't want to because yes. they don't understand that their positions are actually implicated in the emergence of new fascism. Okay, but that's a longer story. To get back, look, the, the killing of this 22-year-old woman is absolutely appalling. Horrific. And I love it that the young kids are shouting out, are taking on the authorities, are running in the streets. Not so much. I don't like it that they're running away from those who are chasing them, but it's beautiful. It's an unauthorized upsurge, right? Mm -hmm. They know that this is not permitted, and they are, in some sense, doing the impermissible in yeah. order to lay claim to a future of freedom. So moves my heart. Love it. I don't think we should be making some big argument that it's the hijab, which is oppressive, and yeah. the hijab yes. should be yes. banned. That would be like the 90s argument. Yeah. Right. It's like there are a lot, and there are a lot of people, a lot of women who wear hijabs who are really angry that this young woman who apparently wore hers improperly was killed. Yes. It actually sets them back because they want to live a life where they are free to wear that hijab, where the, where the French state doesn't stop them from wearing it. Right. Or This too is choice and autonomy. Like, yeah. Yes. And it's an embodied way of living yes. that gives them dignity and that yes. allows them to live with their communities and with their belief. And they should be allowed to do that. So I just don't want the totally legitimate condemnation of this brutal murder to turn into a movement against the hijab. I think that's so important. I'm so grateful to you for saying that. We need to yes. say it a couple of times over because I saw even the New York Times this morning, it's like, oh... Freedom is freedom from the hijab. It's like, right. well, actually, what about freedom no. to wear it without harassment and freedom to wear it improperly without murder? This is exactly what I wanted to ask about. You know, like we've read our Spivak, right? Like, I don't want to be here to save brown men from brown women in that like very like colonialist framing. So I'm curious if you have thoughts, Professor Butler, about how Western and even white feminists can ally themselves more effectively, less condescendingly with this really important fight. Well, I think the main thing is to make the connections there. Yes. I see that many people are organizing. There are petitions, there are assemblies. This last weekend, there were assemblies in every major urban center in the United States. Unfortunately, it was raining hideously in New York, but maybe it'll get rescheduled. And we need to get more mindful. We need to learn that history. We need to figure out what feminists there are asking for and yes. what they want from us, yes. right? So we shouldn't just be inspecting ourselves. <laughs> right. Like, what can yeah. I do? It's like, we need to listen to what people are asking of us. And then also judge because... Some people will be, well, they'll be arguing two different things. So far, I've gotten two different kinds of messages that I had to set aside, one of which was, look what happened to this woman. We need to oppose the hijab sign here. Or, this is simplistic, oh, there is an Islamophobic backlash right. as a result of this murder. We need to defend the hijab sign here. <laughs> and I kind of think like I need to hold the complexity of both yes. of those things without yeah. dismissing 
the legitimate vocal intensifying condemnation of this murder and of state violence of this kind in Iran. Let's remember Iran runs one of the most horrid prisons in the world. The Evan prison is a place where political prisoners, reporters, you know, people run podcasts. Uh, yeah, journalists, scholars, yes. Everybody, you know, a lot of people have been put. It's yeah. it's hideous. This state surveillance and state violence is very serious there, and we shouldn't be making any excuses for it. So we need to have an unequivocal condemnation of that violence. At the same time, I think that we cannot start circulating secular ideals as if they represent the only possible version of freedom. Right. Iranian women should be able to move in the street with or without hijab without being attacked by police. It's police violence we're opposing. It's not the hijab. Yes. Oh, that's so important. Yeah. Beautiful. So pivoting yet again, you know, so this is a podcast about gender, but it also has sort of become both because Laura and I are writers, you know, a podcast about writing while being a feminist. And if I understand correctly, your new book is going to be kind of a departure for you. It's going to be a new kind of book. And so would it be okay to ask about your writing process? What is it like? Was it different for this book? Or do you have, after all these years, a kind of a thing that you just know works and you fall back on? (laughs) Well, no, because, you know, I mean, this book is supposed to reach a wider public. I'm not just writing for those who already sort of think the same way. And I've I've gone with the trade press for the first time. And yeah. That means moving much more slowly with my prose and making sure it stays open. Mm. As somebody who's been, you know, <laughs> uh, ridiculed for the complexity of my prose, it's you know, it's kind of fun to go really slow. <laughs> I don't assume you've read the Spivak. I don't assume you you know Sarah Ahmed. But I'm gonna try to offer some things, you know, that give you a different perspective on gender than what you thought was going on. So it's hard for me to go that slowly. Usually I write quickly and my sentences can be rather complex, as you know, but I need to open it up more and I need to frame it more. So, you know, I hope to be done by now, but I'm not not quite done because I'm <laughs> joining the ranks of writers everywhere. Yeah. The first writer in history to whom this has ever happened. <laughs> it's much easier for me to write something academic, I have to say. That's what I was deriving from what you were saying. That's my yeah. automatic. I like, can't wait to get back to some like obscure German text from the 19th century. Nice. I was so endeared by that implication of what you were just saying. I was like, so what this professor is saying is when they're really cranking, when it's really automatic, the dense academic prose is what shows up and you really have to slow down to open it up. That's wonderful. Just chef's kiss. I do hope that you share <laughs> your your cleansing ritual afterwards. Like what's the most, you know, what's the thing you're going to do when you no longer have to write short sentences? What's the text that you're just going to, that the most obscure thing you can think of? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm trying to think about Kafka and the law, but it also means going back to legal theory in the early Beautiful. 20th century. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. He was trained as a jurist at one point and he was reading some pretty weird stuff. So it's kind of wonky and weird. Would you connect this sort of like wonky legal nerd aspect of yourself to your mother's work? (laughs) Uh, Maybe. It seems very connected on a policy sort of attention level. Sadly, you know, I've been thinking about this lately. I mean, my, my mother was, you know, she was very politically astute and she cared about civics, you know, like she was aware of all the laws that were going on, which were good, which were bad. She talked to me about gerrymandering when I was six. I don't know. Wow. I love this image. <laughs> but she also said to me like, oh, a lot of bad things happen in this country, but we have the Supreme Court. And she really mm. believed that 
no matter what went wrong, the Supreme Court could be relied on to stop, wow. you know, stop the racist, stop the mob, stop the fascists. And, you know, the loss of that, which has been mm-hmm. happening for some time, I mean, right. Dobbs is a devastation, but the place of the Supreme Court, it doesn't live in our hearts, <laughs> in the liberal heart, right. let's put it that way, right. in the same way that it did yeah. in the 1960s when I, or early 70s, when I was talking to my mother about it. But I think that there are certain ideals of, oh, here's a principle of justice beyond which there is no further principle, and it will declare that this or that is unjust in the final instance. It's like, actually not. And that's Kafka's world. That is Kafka's world. I find something so poignant about that faith in the Supreme Court. Nearly theological. Nearly theological. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're... Are you in the birth order of your family? I'm a middle child. You're a middle child. Do you subscribe to theories of birth order? Like, do you find them applicable? No, but I see that my brother monopolized masculinity and my sister monopolized femininity. Okay. So my non-binariness seems to be a function of being a middle child. Well, that is just fascinating. Laura is collecting these, I should say, and I. This has been a long tug of war between the two hosts of this podcast. I'm a little obsessed with birth order. Yeah, we are split within ourselves as to birth order theory. <laughs> Adrian is a oldest child who are the most frequent birth order theory denialists. Um, I am an only child. I see. Yeah, but I see your conceptualization of middle children as very rich and illuminating. In this I don't instance. know if other people feel this way, but it so happened, you know, that all the genders were taken, and I don't know. Right. I just it makes perfect sense. Sounds- to me yeah and you're like well i gotta write a book now (laughs) (laughs) oh that's funny and yeah i just wanted to thank you you know we always conclude by thanking our guest for coming through and for for speaking with us but speaking with you frankly it feels we owe you for a lot more than just being here and giving an hour of your time to us lord do we there's this i think it's the subtitle of godard's masculine femina you know the children of marx and coca-cola and when we started the podcast i kind of wanted to give the podcast the tagline the children of Diet Dr. Pepper Judith Butler. And <laughs> the only reason we didn't do it is that we both get Diet Dr. Pepper. I, I have a favorite parent in that construction, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's just to say that, you know, we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be doing this work, and we wouldn't have the audience that we have if it weren't for your work. And so we really want to thank you for all of that too. We're going to gesture wildly at everything and thank you for it. Um, but also just specifically thank you for being here for this hour. And it's been just absolute pleasure to talk to you about the new book and about your work and about the global freakout about gender. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And please keep in mind, I'm also indebted to my readers and I'm also indebted to many people who came before me who produced a lot of great work that allowed mine to come to fruition. So thank you so much. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.